So if you've got a Bible, we're in Mark. We're carrying on our series in Mark this morning. And Mark chapter 3, uh, we're going to take about 10 verses of this, of this chapter in, in, in Mark chapter 3, starting at about verse 20. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about a scene where Jesus was surrounded by this, this big crowd, this big mob who were just pressing in, trying to get their piece of the action, trying to receive a healing from him or have a demon cast out or whatever it was their particular ailment was. And uh, they had no real concern for Jesus. They're just described as this crowd. They crop up again here in Mark chapter 3. Have a look at this in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So it's getting pretty chaotic. You've got a situation. Jesus is in a little house in Galilee, maybe a village like Capernaum. And obviously there are so many people cramming into this house, suffocating him and surrounding him, tugging on him, wanting a piece of him, wanting him to fix them, that Jesus and his disciples are not even physically able to get the time and space to have a meal, just to actually consume food. And what happens is that his family... Jesus' own flesh and blood family. Find out about this. That's the next verse. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, literally to drag him away. For they said, he is out of his mind. This is one first assessment of who Jesus is. I mean, get your head around this. Jesus' own family, they hear about this idea that their their precious son is not eating He's not having his five plus a day because he cannot get the time and space to do it. And their verdict as they arrive and see what's going on is that he is basically what they're saying, he's insane. His own mum and dad and brothers and sisters show up and their assessment of who this man is, he's insane. He's out of his mind. And they come to literally try and take charge of him, take him back to Nazareth. Come on, come home, son. We're going to sort you out. We're going to get you away from the mob, away from the crowd. We're going to feed you. We're going to take care of you and so on. I'm sure with good intentions. It's pretty unbelievable, though, to think that here is Jesus, family, coming out with this kind of a verdict, that he is insane. He is out of his mind. And there are people today who would say, that's essentially what you're dealing with, a lunatic, a madman, someone who is out of his good mind to do the kind of things he was doing and live the kind of life he lived. Then there's another group of people. Verse 22, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So what you've got here is a group of Jewish teachers. Essentially, they would come from a ruling Jewish authority called the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish council or authority that Rome allowed the Jews to set up. This was the big guys of Judaism. They had heard about this man from Galilee, this guy doing stuff, saying stuff, not sure about what's going on. Some of what he says seems to cohere with our teachings. Some of it seems way off base. So they would dispatch a little delegation, a few people, a few uh, Jewish teachers. They would go up to Galilee and they would assess the situation. What's going on here? Who's the perpetrator? What's he saying? How does it fit with the uh, framework of Judaism? And then they'd pass judgment. Essentially, they'd make a ruling verdict to decide who's guilty, who's not guilty, and who's being influenced by this potentially uh, lethal teaching. And here it is right there. Mark records it for us, what their assessment eventually is. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And Beelzebul is simply another name for the Satan. 
The figure that we encountered back in Mark chapter 1, Satan. And there's another name for him here that is given the prince of demons. It's all names for the same thing. Beelzebul was probably just a more colloquial name at the time, but it's all getting at that same figure. The prince of darkness, the great arch rival of God, the Satan, the devil. These people, these Jewish teachers of the law come. Now notice this. What they don't say is that this is all a load of rubbish. They cannot deny that there's something going on here. So you notice they don't say, well, this is just phony. This is fake. There is no exorcism happening. There are no miracles happening. It's just a show. They cannot say that. They cannot deny the power of what's actually happening. There's something going on. What they need to do is find an explanation for it. What they need to do is attribute it to someone or something. And so what they come up with is this theory that basically Jesus is possessed by Satan and is therefore casting out demons through the power of Satan. Now, Jesus then gets on the front foot with this and responds to his accusers. This is verse 23, and we have here the beginnings of Jesus starting to describe his own identity, who he is through his own eyes and his own understanding. Verse 23, So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and he is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. What Jesus is basically saying, it's just this argument of logic. He's saying, all right, let's just let's take your theory for just a second. Let's just work this through. You're saying that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. These demons work for Satan. They're his minions. These guys do his bidding. He is their boss. And so how could it possibly be that Satan is casting out his own demons? That just doesn't even make sense. These demons are only there because Satan told them to go and occupy the bodies of these people. They're there because Satan ordered them. Why would Satan come and cast out his own demons? And, and furthermore, says Jesus, even if that was the case, even if Satan was somehow casting out his own workers, his own agents, then basically you've got a divided kingdom. Basically, Satan is then divided against his own uh, demons. His kingdom's divided. His house is shaken. And his end has come anyway. He's over. He's finished. Which is what Jesus has been saying all along. That Satan's end has come. He's been conquered. It's over. There's a new kingdom coming. So Jesus has basically got them on, this, on these two points of supreme logic. And frankly, I mean, the case that they put forward was a bit pathetic in the first place. You're slightly embarrassed for them, weren't you? Sort of thinking that's a pretty flimsy excuse for what, you know, they were clutching at straws. But Jesus comes in with a sweeping logic and says, it doesn't make sense what you're saying. Even if it did, it would spell the end of Satan's domain. His rule would be over. And that's the bottom line of what I'm saying anyway, is that Satan, Satan's end has come. He is cast down. His kingdom is divided. So he responds uh, to this accusation, and then he gets right on the front foot. And he, he really starts now explaining his identity and telling them, well, here is who I am. Verse 27, in fact, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Now, this is one of the most succinct descriptions of Jesus' identity in the Scriptures. It's kind of shrouded in a bit of a metaphor that you have to unpack here. The, the image is of a strong man, essentially, and Jesus is saying, Satan's a bit like a strong man. 
who has this house. Satan's domain, his realm, the dominion that he has, his kingdom of darkness is a bit like this house that the strong man has. And when Satan uh, sends a particular demonic force to inhabit the body of a human being, it's like that person is taken into the domain of Satan. It's like that person is taken into the house of the strong man as a hostage. They are in the realm of darkness. While these people were being influenced and possessed by evil spirits, it's like they were in the strong man's house. They were under his control. He had the influence. Jesus is saying, you can't just walk in to the strong man's house and take back his hostages, right? It's like a hostage situation that you might think of today in a bank or something similar. If you've got a gunman holding people at gunpoint, hostages in a bank, you can't just walk in and say, all right, who's a hostage? Follow me. Out we go. You can't just go in and just take them out. What do you got to do first? You've got to contend with the, the hostage taker. You've got to contend with the offender. You've got to somehow deal with the strong man. If you want to plunder his house, if you want to take back his captives, you're going to have to deal with the strong man. You're going to have to bind him up. You're going to have to immobilize him somehow. Jesus is saying it's not as simple as me simply coming and exorcising these demons, casting them out of people. In order to even do what I am doing requires me to have bound up the one to whom they answer. That's the reality. Now, so that kind of escalates this to a whole nother level because suddenly Jesus is not just a worker of miracles. Suddenly he's just not another alleged divine figure, someone who just a snake oil salesman in the Middle East in the first century going around doing a bit of magic. Suddenly he's saying, no, no, I'm not even just casting out demons. To do that requires binding the strong man. Now work the logic backwards. If it is in fact true, and the Jewish authorities can't deny that it is, if it is actually true that Jesus is genuinely delivering people from the house of the strong man, what does that mean has happened? He's bound up the strong man himself. He has actually conquered the one who holds the power over all these demons, these agents of darkness. He has done this. And who is the only being in existence that could possibly have the power and the authority over the prince of demons himself? It's the God of Israel. In the Jewish mind, the logic is inescapable. The only person who could possibly bind up the strong man... I mean, one thing to cast out the odd demon. You're talking about binding up the prince of darkness. The only solitary figure that could possibly ever do this is the living God. See, people say sometimes, well, there's never a time in the Gospels where Jesus comes out and says directly that he's God. You know, and he never says, I am the Son of God or I am the second person of the Trinity or something like that. But, but friends, quite honestly, that's a pretty simplistic way of reasoning it. When you look at the Jewish frame of reference, the way these people would have heard what Jesus has said, the dots are all there. All it takes is to run a line through them. The logic of what he's saying is inescapable if you actually follow it step by step, which is why when Richard Dawkins says, well, there's, no, there's, there's good historical evidence, rather, that Jesus never thought he was divine, that is simply undercut by the force of the texts themselves in which Jesus is saying, I am greater than the strong man, I have bound up the strong man, the only one possibly able to do this is God. Jesus is identifying himself with the God of Israel. That's the logical conclusion. He is declaring himself here to be Lord and God. That's it. Now the question is, what does that all mean? And so what? 
What does that mean for us? How, what claim does this have on our lives? I want to look with you just a little bit more closely at this idea of binding up the strong man because it's a pretty key biblical concept. The, the obvious objection to this when you start talking about the fact that Jesus has come and has bound up Satan is, well, it doesn't look like it to me. I mean, look around. Does it really look like Satan is bound up? 1 Peter 5 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How can Jesus possibly say that he's bound up the strong man? Satan seems very much alive. The havoc, the uh, immorality, the tragedy that we see all around us, isn't that testimony to the ongoing power of Satan? Well, there is a really key passage here, and this is fascinating stuff. This is worth the ticket price of coming this morning, all right? Over in uh, Revelation chapter 20, flick over there for just a second. There, there is a link here that I think opens up this whole concept of Jesus binding up the strong man, Jesus binding up Satan. Revelation 20, it's a pretty uh, thick passage laden with imagery and symbols. It's prophetic. Um, it would take a lot of time to unpack this. But let me just from the outset say, I would argue that these first three verses in Revelation 20 actually describe exactly the same event that Jesus has described in Mark chapter 3 of binding up the strong man. But what we're seeing in Revelation 20 is the same event from a different camera angle. Now we are seeing it from the angle of heaven rather than the angle of earth. Have a read of this, see if you agree. Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Isn't that interesting stuff? You look at that and you think, doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 3? So it's easy when you get to Revelation to assume, well, isn't this all in the future? This hasn't happened yet, surely. This is, this is ages away. But think about the imagery here. It's logical to take this angel coming out of heaven as Jesus, the, one, the man from heaven, as Paul describes him in Philippians 2, the one who came down to earth. He comes down, he seizes Satan, who's also described in these images of the dragon or the serpent, clearly a reference to Satan, that much is spelled out for us, and he binds him for a thousand years. Just as Jesus talks about tying up the strong man back in Mark 3, now the angel from heaven is coming down. It's just the same picture, different images. The angel from heaven is coming down and binding up Satan, tying up Satan. Now, the, one, the thing that some people stumble over is they say, yeah, but hang on, because here it says he's going to be bound for a thousand years. Now, surely that's past, because we're now 2,000 years on, so what's the story? Well, I would argue that that 1,000 years is not literally 1,000 years. It is simply a long, indefinite period of time. You say, but it says 1,000 years. Yep, and it says in the Psalms that God owns the cattle on 1,000 hills. Not literally 1,000 hills, right? Just every hill. Uh, all hills. Yeah. The, the, the prophetic literature is just replete with numerology and symbolism that isn't supposed to be taken absolutely literally. Otherwise, what we've got here is an angel and a serpent and literally a thousand years. Now, clearly, these things stand for other things. They are symbols. They are images that represent other realities. And what's being told to us here is that Jesus has come and has bound Satan for a long, indefinite period of time, which I would argue is simply the time we are in right now. 
the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That is the millennium. That is the thousand-year period. Not literally a thousand years, but we're in the middle of it. We are in the period in which Satan is bound right now. And there's a key phrase here that helps us understand exactly what this binding looks like. You might have picked it up. It's in verse 3. He threw him into the abyss. He locked and sealed it over him. Why? To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Until the time of Jesus, through the Old Testament story, God's redemptive activity, his rescue plan for humanity, was restricted to the nation of Israel. Israel never had a commissioning to go and reach the nations. Israel never had a commissioning to take the good news out. Now, there were prophets who, who prophesied doom and so on, like Jonah, but Israel never had a commissioning to take this good news further afield. It was only as Jesus came and then as the Spirit came at this event that George Whelan described to us last week on the day of Pentecost, and what happened? The gospel began moving out to all the nations. It began moving beyond ethnic Israel to encompass all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. No longer did Satan have the power to stop the gospel from spreading out. No longer did Satan have the power to keep the nations in bondage and in deception, as they essentially were in the Old Testament period. But now the gospel is going out. It's moving forward. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell, Satan's domain, cannot stand against it. That's because Satan is bound. Yes, he can deceive a lot of people within the nations. Yes, he can do a lot of damage and he can take a lot of people down and he can fight a lot of guerrilla warfare until Jesus comes again. But he fundamentally cannot stop the gospel from spreading. He cannot stop the flame of the gospel from spreading around the world. And the story of Acts bears that out. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then Cilicia, Bithynia, Asia, on it goes. The gospel's moving out, Satan's bound, and the missionary movement that started with the person of Jesus is now marching on, and it continues today. See, friend, I think in here, there's a missional principle, isn't there? Shouldn't this, for us, give us a bit of impetus in evangelism? Shouldn't this give us a bit of impetus in the missionary movement that we are now bound up in, knowing that, well, bound up's bad terminology, Satan's bound, we're the ones, and the gospel is the one who is loosed. It's free reign. We now have the ability to take the gospel to all nations, all peoples, all tribes, and all tongues. And as Dr. Whelan so aptly pointed out last week, they're all right here in our city anyway. doesn't take going overseas to do that. The gospel spreading to the nations is something that can happen in the city of Auckland in the 21st century. Friends, this should fire us up, quite honestly, that we are triumphing over a defeated foe. Satan cannot stop the spread of the gospel. He can deceive people, yes. And we could all name things, you know, the, the evil in the world, the damage that he has done, but fundamentally he can't stop that gospel from spreading. I love that old chorus. It's a bit too cheesy, so my wife won't let me sing it on Sunday mornings. But the one that says, Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. Send forth your word. Lord, let there be light. That's the catch cry of the Jesus movement. That's the missional cry of the church who is implementing the victory of God in the face of a defeated enemy. That's the mission that we have. And it should stir our hearts and put steel in our bones to know that Satan's bound and the gospel is freed. So this is one response that we have to the lordship of Jesus now.
to participate with him in this mission of the gospel. There's another response, though, and we pick this up in verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven all their sins and all the blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin. <laughs> nice to have something light to end with, isn't it? Man, we, we, I mean, how, how, you could spend so long on this passage. This is the great controversial text that um, there has been so much debate on, the unforgivable sin, the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a serious issue, and there really are people that are, that are caught up in this, because on the surface of it, Jesus is seeming to suggest that there is a sin that's unforgivable, and it's when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, when you somehow speak against the Spirit. Now, a couple of things to point out on this. A lot more that could be said, but let me just make two points. Firstly, the word blaspheme does not simply mean a little formula of words that you might roll out. It can mean abusive speech, but it doesn't just mean that by any definition. It is a much broader term that means to reject, to revile, to scorn, to shame, to, to simply spit in the face of is really the sense of it, to absolutely reject outright. There are texts, ancient Jewish texts like First Maccabees, where the Gentile nations are described as being blasphemous simply because they don't believe. Not because they do anything in particular, not because they say anything in particular. They're called blasphemous nations simply because they don't believe in the living God. So unbelief can constitute blasphemy, as it's listed here. You can't narrow it down and say blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a little formula of words if you say this against God, if you say that's not of God, or this is Satan, not God, and accidentally trip up and get the words wrong or something like that, suddenly you're in this category. That's just far too simplistic and narrow a use of that word. It more broadly means to reject and to revile. Secondly, though, place this verse and this passage back into its historical context. What you've got here are a bunch of Jewish teachers of the law. Right? These guys were steeped in the Torah. They'd grown up with the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. They knew it back to front, and frankly, they should have known better. They understood their Bible really well. They encountered Jesus they saw his power and they did not deny that what was happening was real, that what was happening was legitimate, that what was happening was some sort of supernatural power. Nothing they say discounts that. They simply were then faced with the alternative of either acknowledging that Jesus is operating by the Spirit of the living God, which was the glaringly obvious conclusion, or finding some other whimsical explanation for this power, which they end up coming up with by clutching at straws and this, this flimsy little excuse about, well, maybe he's possessed by Satan and Satan's casting out his own demons. This is not just a little formula of words. This is not them just getting the formula wrong. This is not just a heat of the moment, silly decision or moment of weakness. This is, my friends, conscious, deliberate, willful, and persistent rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in a moment, not in the heat of, of anger or even for a period of time. Conscious, deliberate, persistent rejection of God. William Lane puts it this way. He says, in this historical context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. And as long as they were in the state of absolutely refusing to acknowledge that Jesus was who he said he was, there was no way for them to be forgiven. 
How could they possibly receive the forgiveness Jesus was offering them while they stood at arm's length from him and declared that he was basically working for the other side, that he was possessed by Satan? They couldn't be forgiven because they refused to be forgiven. That's what the unforgivable sin amounts to, is refusing forgiveness. And while you're in that state, of course you can't be forgiven. Does that mean that if they hadn't turned around, or if they had turned around and said, we believe, we confess that, that you are who you say you are and begun following Jesus, they, they, they couldn't be forgiven? Of course not. And so much else in the Gospels, not least the parable of the prodigal son, bears out the fact that for everybody who turns back towards Christ, there is full and free and complete forgiveness, of course. There is no implication here that once you've rejected Jesus once, you can never be forgiven again. It's simply saying that while you stay in the state of unforgiveness, while you stay in the state of rebellion and rejection of God, reviling Him and refusing to allow Him into your life, it is impossible for you to be forgiven. And if you persist in that through your life, then you'll be separated from God, not only in this life, but in the next. That's the bottom line. And so who today is guilty then of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Who is guilty of the unforgivable sin? Certainly not those who in the heat of the moment might say some silly words. Certainly not those even who go through a period of their life apart from God, who have a moment of weakness, who stumble and fall along the way. It is those who consciously, deliberately, willfully, and persistently reject God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's basically the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of rejecting God, which is impossible for people to be forgiven from as long as they remain in that place of rebellion, in that place of rejection. So friends, you need to know, there may be some of you here this morning that really feel like this is where you're at, that you have committed this sin and somehow there's no way back to God. And you need to hear afresh the message of God's grace this morning. You really do. You need to hear that He loves you. You need to know that there absolutely is a way back. Nothing you can do can ever separate you from the love of God. And as long as you are willing to open your arms to Him uh, coming into your life and transforming you, God will run towards you and embrace you. He is absolutely willing to do that. His posture towards you is not one of judgment. It's one of love. He's inviting you home. He's not standing at arm's length. You can be forgiven. And the flip side of that, friends, is in order for me to declare the whole counsel of God's word to you, the flip side is that there is a warning in here. And it's a warning for those who do choose to persistently reject Christ. That if that is the, the, the characteristic of your life until the day that you die, it is impossible. There are no second chances after this life. You cannot be forgiven as long as you are refusing forgiveness. Tom Wright puts it this way, using a great little analogy. He says, if you decide firmly that the doctor who is operating to perform a life-saving operation on you is, in fact, a sadistic murderer, you will never give your consent to the operation. And of course, and that's basically what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is deciding that God isn't for me, that I don't want Him, that I refuse Him, and I keep Him at arm's length. And while you're in that state, you're never going to accept forgiveness. But if you would turn and run into the arms of the God who loves you, that forgiveness and that transformation is waiting for you today. That's the hope of the gospel, friends. Don't lose sight of that. So you end up with really these two alternatives to this reality that Jesus declares himself to be the God of Israel, the living God, Yahweh. And that reality can prompt two different responses. There is on the one hand those who choose to accept that and then be drawn into the mission of Jesus, who has bound the strong man and now invites all of us to plunder the strong man's house, to take back what Satan's stolen, to rescue people from his domain, to take lives that have been stolen and lost and bring them into the kingdom of light and the power of the Spirit. That's the mission that we are now given. 
or we can stand at arm's length. We can reject, we can refuse to acknowledge Jesus, we can come up with other excuses and other explanations to prevent us from acknowledging who he truly is. Let me finish this morning with a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis. Some of you are waiting when I was going to pull this out. This is just a beauty, and he puts it so much better than I ever could. Uh, in, uh, he says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let's pray.